welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Well, good morning and Happy New Year to you. So good to see you here. Why aren't you at the beach? Oh yeah, that's right, there's no sun, why? Um, It's my job to start the summer series, but we've made a unilateral decision to change the name of the summer series to, I hope the summer's still coming, series. So, um, So part one of I hope the summer's coming series. Uh, In the morning, we're talking about historical revivals, great refreshing works of God's Spirit through seasons of uh, history, and then in the evening, we are talking about uh, big messages from small books. So my task is to introduce the morning series of um, revivals, Um, seasons, as I say, of God moving with great power in certain geographical regions, in certain spaces or seasons of time in which the church was incredibly impacted and also the secular community. Um, If you've done any reading on these seasons of God's movings uh, in history, you'll know that sometimes they are very, very geographically located. So much so that writers who describe those times sometimes use the, the words a, a, a divine radiation zone where people would literally step into a geographical area and be impacted by this sense of God's presence, God's moving. In the uh, South American revival, um, apparently in the Argentinian revival, there was a town and the border of Argentine or Argentina and another country actually went down the main street of this particular uh, community. And people would say how when they would try and share the gospel on one side, people would resist, uh, they would hand them a tract, they would just push it away, they would cross the other side of the street and suddenly be convicted by the presence of God, they would accept these tracts and, and suddenly just an incredible change of, of mind and of heart just by, by walking a few steps through this geographical sort of space. Uh, in, the, in the revival of what, what was called the, the Great Awakening in the U.S., there is recorded incidences of ship after ship making its way into port and coming to a certain place where suddenly conviction would fall on the, on the sailors and recorded incidences of whole ships being converted and arriving, praising God, rejoicing, totally lives totally changed. Now, sometimes, as I say, these moves were particularly geographically located, other times much more widespread with sparks flicking out literally all over the world. Some of these revivals had definite personalities that that fronted the revival, and you can think of people like John Wesley, uh, Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. You can immediately put a name to that that move of the Holy Spirit. Other times, they seem to occur without any particular person being at the forefront. 
So my task this morning is to kind of introduce this series on revivals, and I want to do that by defining the terms that we are using so that we're all on the same page, and then we're going to look at the scriptures to see what they have to say about these kinds of seasons. Uh, Some of you may have done some reading around the topic and are relatively familiar with the terms that I'm going to use. Uh, Others of you, this will be a comparatively unexplored topic, and so to help establish a kind of a community of understanding, uh, I want to define the terms so that we know what we're talking when we use them. So what are we talking about when we use the word revival? Used in relation to spiritual things, it can mean different things to different people. To skeptics, to unbelievers, it conjures up times of excessive runaway emotionalism. Hundreds of years ago, they used to call people who got caught up in these seasons uh, by what they meant, very pejoratively, they would call them enthusiasts. Uh, In describing these seasons of God moving, often the secular press uses language like brainwashing, mass hysteria, some kind of religious frenzy, uh, compares it with some kind of hypnotic psychic phenomena that has a widespread effect on the community. So for Secular people, that's often what they mean when they talk about religious revival. To some sections of the church, the term revival is synonymous with the term evangelism. You might hear, not so much these days, but occasionally you used to at least anyway, hear people talking about their church planning a revival. Uh, What they meant was that they were going to have an evangelistic crusade. Uh, In the the 1970s, there were a number of churches that had the word revival in their name. Karen and I were part of a church many years ago called the Martin Revival Center. Well, more truthfully, we were the Martin Evangelistic Center, Um, but that was how that word was often used. Now, in using the term revival, I'm talking about much more than evangelistic crusades, In evangelism, really, people take the initiative, maybe at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, but when you come to talk about revival as we are using the term, that's solely at divine discretion. God God does that. That isn't something people organize. Revival is far more than big meetings, religious excitement, and lots of people making a decision to follow Christ. In fact, you can have all of those things and not have revival. Some of you are old enough to perhaps remember the Billy Graham Crusades of the mid-1950s in New Zealand. They had all of those elements, large meetings, tremendous excitement, and many people making a choice to follow Christ. But I'm not aware of anybody who uh, used the term revival to describe that season. So let's define what we're talking about. The Webster Dictionary defines revival this way, a return or a recall or a recovery to life from death or apparent death as in the revival of a drowned person. Or perhaps revival, or it could mean return, recall or recovery from a state of neglect, oblivion, obscurity or depression. So revival by dictionary definition is the reanimation of that which was once alive, once vibrant, but has come to a place of decay, declension and or death. D.M. Panton defines revival as the inrush of the spirit into a body that threatens to become a corpse. The the first thing I want to note about revival as we are using the term is that it primarily relates to those who once had life but are in present danger of losing it. So revival biblically doesn't particularly have to do with the non-Christian sector of society. It may ultimately affect them significantly, 
But it doesn't start there. Now, without wanting to sound unkind or judgmental, the Bible describes unbelievers as being alienated from the life of God, dead in their trespasses and sins. So, in fact, not having any life to be revived. Revival has to do with those who have experienced life, but who are presently in a state of decay near death. That is the church, people in the church. Jeffrey King defines revival as a sovereign act of God upon the church, whereby he intervenes to lift the situation entirely out of human hands and works in extraordinary power. Stephen Alford says, Revival is that strange and sovereign work of God in which he visits his own people, restoring, reanimating, and releasing them into the fullness of his blessing. And the venerable Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Primarily, of course, and by definition, a revival is something that happens first in the church and amongst Christian people. It is a revival. Something is revived. And when you say that, you mean that there is something present that has got life but that that life was beginning to wane, to droop, and it almost become moribund. Revival means awakening, stimulating the life, bringing it to the surface again. It happens primarily in the church of God and amongst believing people, and only secondly, something that affects those who are outside. Now, some people are really quick to point out that the word revival actually doesn't occur in the Scriptures, and, and that, that's true. Um, however, neither does the word trinity. Uh, I think neither of us or none of us would argue that not being a biblical word doesn't mean it isn't necessarily a biblical concept. The word, the Hebrew word revive is found at least 14 times in the scripture. It's translated by the Hebrew word hayah, kind of Miss Piggy, you know, hayah, knocking Kermit out of the classroom or wherever it is, you know, it, that's the Hebrew word. And um, it describes something being revived from death. It's used to describe Elijah raising the widow's son. That time in 2 Kings chapter 13 where a man is buried, touches Elijah's bones and is revived. It's sometimes used to describe the repair of a city that has been devastated by war or neglect, as in when David rebuilt Zion and Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem. Most often it's used to describe people in prayer asking God to revive them. For example, in Psalm 85, verse 6, the psalmist says, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Somebody has done a breakdown on that little verse and said, Will you describes the giver of revival, God. Will you not revive us? That's the need for revival. Again, the word again is the history of revival. That your people, that's the subjects of revival, may rejoice, that's the effects of revival, in you, that's the end and purpose of revival. So while the Bible doesn't actually use specifically the word revival, the concept most definitely is there. And I'm not going to take time to look at these. You might like to look at them later if you like. But Dr. Wilbur Swith, uh, Smith notes eight outstanding seasons of revival in the Old Testament. There's Jacob's household in Genesis 35. There's the revival under Asa in 2 Chronicles. Jehoash in 2 Kings. Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 29. And Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 22. And then after the people come back from exile, of course, Ezra talks about a revival under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah's revival. And then, of course, you've got the story of Jonah and the revival that transpires in Nineveh. 
Perhaps the most notable passage in the New Testament on revival is found in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, where it says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Times of refreshing. The Greek is anapsuxis. And it means to have a recovery by virtue of someone breathing into you. And this recovery by the breath of the Lord into us is promised to believers. So it seems to me that such seasons that we call revival are not only present in the scripture, but should be anticipated and expected by people like you and I. So in this, um, we hope that summer series is coming. Um, We're going to look at times when they occurred in post-biblical periods, not the revivals of the Bible, but seasons since the closure of the canon where God has moved in dramatic ways. Before we do that, and and Chris is really going to kick off that next week looking at the Welsh revival, I want to look at a couple of scriptural passages to show you the kinds of things that we might expect to happen if God revives us in that kind of way. And a classic passage is found in the Minor Prophets in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, where it says this. First of all, Habakkuk's praying, and he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your walk, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. He's praying, Lord, revive us. Have mercy on us. In wrath, remember mercy. Then immediately after that, we have God's response. It says, God came from Timan and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and a plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Two words really in this passage describe the heart of the matter, and it's God came. Habakkuk is praying, Lord, would you revive your work? In the midst of the years, would you make your work known once again? And wrath, remember mercy, the answer is God came. And revival is a season of the manifest presence of God. We could, we could say, God came. Now, some of you might say, well, God is omnipotent, Don. That means he's everywhere. So such talk of God coming is kind of nonsense. How can he come where he already is? Well, I don't plan to get into some kind of theological, philosophical jousting match with anybody over that, but sufficient to say that it seems to me that while it's true that God is everywhere, that he's omnipotent, it's also true that he can be in some places in a way that he is not in others. All right. You, you think of Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, fleeing from his brother Esau. And he stops in a place where he has an incredible dream. And on awakening, he calls the place Bethel. And he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. Now, it wouldn't have done any good to give Jacob a lecture on God's omnipotence. Because he had encountered the manifest presence of God in that place. And without wanting to be, as I say, philosophical or theological, the presence of God and the manifest presence of God aren't the same thing. You can have one without the other. God can be here and we can be wholly unaware of it, but his presence is manifest only when and as we are suddenly made aware of that. So seasons of revival are above all times of his manifest presence. God comes. 
And in that passage that we read in Habakkuk, there are seven phrases that begin with the word his. Let me read it to you again, and you can note them. God came from Teman, and his holy one from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flash from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and a plague followed at his heels. And then down at the end, it says, his were the everlasting ways. Seven phrases, his splendor, his brightness, his praise, his hand, his power, his feet or heels and his ways. Let me very briefly look at those because in a way they unpack what these seasons of revival actually look like. So firstly, there's his glory or splendor. Arthur Wallace says, revival is such a display of God's holiness and power that often human personalities are overshadowed and human programs are abandoned. It is God breaking into the consciousness of men in majesty and glory. That word in the Hebrew, hood, is often used adjectivally to describe the word of God. So for example, in Isaiah 30, it says, and the Lord shall call his, cause his glorious voice to be heard. And in another place it says, and the voice of the Lord is full of majesty, full of glory. Seasons are, of revival are times when the voice of the Lord is heard afresh in an incredibly powerful way. Words of truth, preaching if you like, that may have, uh, you know, that people may have given mental assent to in one season suddenly come alive with dramatic results. Preaching that had affected little change suddenly moves great numbers of people. It's like something switches and people are hearing something that they didn't hear before, even though it was being spoken. We had a funny incident happen in our house the other night. Um, our, our Grandkids came over and stayed, and um, I went up to say goodnight to Neve, who was with Karen, um, and, and uh, she said to me, Papa, tell me a story, because over the years, I've often, you know, told them stories, and we've, you know, as, as you do as grandparents, okay. So in this moment, I just, I said, you know what, Neve, I'm going to tell you a true story, and I told her some of the dealings of God in my life. I, I told her a couple of experiences I'd had, and I could see her eyes kind of widening. Really? Truly, Papa? That's a true story? I said, that's a true story. Well, at that moment, Kaza, he, she calls Karen Kaza, Kaza came out, and, and it's like, Kaza, will you tell me some of your stories? So I thought, time for me to go, and, and Kaza told her a story. When Karen was a relatively new Christian. Not long after we'd been married, she awoke one evening uh, and, and Jesus was present in a vision form in the room. It was a dramatic encounter that Karen had with, with Jesus. And so Karen told Neve this story and Karen told me her eyes just like got wider and wider and wider. And at the end of it, she said, Kaza. Up till now, I've only been half a Christian, but now I'm a whole one. <laughs> That's the kind of thing that happens in revival. People who are half Christians become whole ones. Suddenly, they hear something that opens up their heart in a way that it wasn't open before. His glory. Secondly is his brightness, his his glorious light. Psalm 36 verse 9 says, in his light we see light. 
in revival season, we see things, especially eternal issues, in a manner and with a perspective that we have never seen before. And one of the marks of those seasons of revival is an incredibly deep conviction regarding our sinfulness. Now, obviously, the sinfulness was present prior to that season. We just didn't see it. Suddenly, the lights come on and and people see their condition. Remember, Isaiah has this incredible encounter with God, and he suddenly he falls to the ground. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips. He saw something. Now, this was a godly man. This wasn't an unconverted man. He'd been in the prophetic ministry up to this point, but suddenly, in God's manifest presence, something is revealed to him. Jonathan Edwards, we may look at him during this series, uh, was a remarkable theologian, philosopher, probably one of the best that America has ever produced. He was a pastor, and uh, in his little village saw an incredible move of the Holy Spirit. He wrote a book about it. They, They had long titles of books in those days. It was called The Great Awakening, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God, 1730 to 40. That was the title. That's almost as long as the book I wrote. But um, he said this, the illusion of the, the illumination of the heart which brought converts in touch with the reality of God simultaneously revealed to them how deeply sin had gripped their own lives. They suddenly became aware that their problem was not isolated acts of conscious disobedience to God, but a deep aversion to God at the root of their personalities, an aversion which left them in unconscious bondage to unbelief, selfishness, jealousy, and other underlying complexes of sin, they saw something. Remember Peter encounters Jesus with the miraculous draft of fish, suddenly he's on his face. Depart from me, God. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Charles Finney described it in a revival that that God used him in. He said, an awful solemnity seemed to settle on the people. The congregation began to fall from their seats in every direction and cry for mercy. If I'd had a sword in each hand, he said, I could not have cut them down as fast as they fell, and I was obliged to stop preaching. It seems that these seasons of revival are both wonderful and terrible, but they're often terrible before they're wonderful. Again, James Burns in his book, he says, to the church, revival means humiliation. A bitter knowledge of the unworthiness and an open, humiliating confession of sin on the part of her ministers and her people. It comes to scorch before it comes to heal. Another word, the third one, is his praise. The Hebrew word here is related to a kind of praise that's particularly sung. It's, It's related to music. And a fascinating thing is as you look at the history of revival, one of the constant themes that emerge out of these seasons of visitation is the music that they produce. Each new visitation produces new levels of praise and worship, carried along and reflected in the song. You know, Martin Luther put the message of the Reformation into song. One of the Catholic bishops complained that Luther had damned more people with his music than with his theology. He, he took the popular songs of the day, often the drinking songs of the public houses, and he changed the words. Gives a whole new meaning to, Our mighty fortress is our God. <laughs> I mean, we're horrified, but that's what he did. That's the way the teaching was spread. The Methodist revival featured not only John Wesley's fiery preaching, but Charles Wesley's wonderful hymns. Wrote nearly 900 hymns that gave voice to what God was doing in that time. 
William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was famous for, for reputedly asking, why should the devil have all the good music? And his army bands were famous for their rousing tunes that stirred the faithful and often caused either a revival or a riot among the non-believers. The Welsh revival, of course, that Chris will look at next week, was probably the most famous of all for its singing. David Matthews, in his book, I Saw the Welsh Revival, said such marvellous singing could only be reflected or created by a supernatural power, the Holy Spirit. No choir, no conductor, no organ, just spontaneous, unctionized soul singing. Of course, you still see the remnants of that when you go to Wales even today. Uh, I went with Chris to the Millennium Stadium a few years ago where Wales was playing Fiji. I was one week too late because, uh, or too early because the week after that they were playing the All Blacks. I would have so loved to have been there then. Uh, but, you know, the, the stadium was only three quarters filled. But I tell you, when they came to sing their national anthem, the remaining hairs, few as they may be, on my head and neck stood up. Because the remnants of that burst in revival in that land. Still there today. Number four is his hand. Scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And every visitation of God has two sides to it, and we have to be aware of that. One is blessing and the other is judgment. Now, in our reading, we tend to focus on the blessing that it brings, but it's only half the story. Yes, of course, the early church, there were the wonderful stories of conversion and healing and deliverance, but the story wouldn't be complete without Acts chapter 5 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira and the withering judgment that fell on them for lying to the Holy Spirit. They were smitten dead. It seems that during times of these revivals and visitation, the stakes are raised and somebody quipped things that you can get away with in a quieter season can get you killed in a revival one. The story is told of George Whitfield, one of the, probably the greatest preachers of church history. He was preaching from a gallows. You know, in those days, um, hangings were kind of, you know, a Saturday afternoon sport. He got the opportunity to stand on the gallows and he started preaching. And uh, as he was preaching, and the text was, it is appointed unto man once to die. Suddenly he's preaching and there came a wild, terrifying shriek from somebody in the crowd. One of his workers ran over to the spot that it emanated from and found a man lying dead. And he called out, Brother Whitfield, you stand among the dead and the dying. An immortal soul has just been called into eternity. The destroying angel is passing through the congregation. Well, there was a momentary silence, and then Whitfield started to preach again, only to be interrupted by a second shriek as a second person fell dead. The storyteller noted, needless to say, the entire audience was predictably overwhelmed by Whitfield's appeal. <laughs> Edward Miller, who was... Uh, involved very much in the Argentinian revival, uh, he spoke of a particular woman that was very resistant to the moving of the Holy Spirit as it occurred in a church that he was involved with. She was constantly warned but remained unrepentant and Miller tells of one meeting when the woman completely lost her mind and, and never recovered. There's two sides to this coin. There is the blessing. There is the darker sign of judgment. Number five is his power. During these seasons, it seems that God does move and incredible power, signs and wonders and miracles abound. Every revival has its particular stories of God's power coming down. Some of the stories that have emerged from revivals in non-Western nations um, literally stretch Western credibility to its very limits. 
Some of you may have heard of the revivals that happened in Nagaland. Nagaland is a province of northeast India, right up in the eastern side, bordering what was Burma, now Myanmar. Some of the stories that have come out of that revival, uh, as I say, are truly incredible and stretch our Western credibility, you know, our ability to even entertain them. Stories of animals and trees singing of Jesus' soon return. I, I had a friend who had the incredible privilege of preaching in Nagaland. It's very, very rare. It's a very difficult area to get into, but he went there, preached, and he said during the meeting, um, doves started circling the auditorium and just r- during the time of the worship went round and round and round, which he said would have perhaps been credible except for the fact that in that particular area of Nagaland there aren't any doves. Some of the stories that have come out of that um, region are phenomenal. 98 to 99% of Nagaland became believers during that season. When you talk to Chinese or Nepali believers, they will tell you signs and wonders and miracles and dreams are standard fare and the main reason for the incredible growth of the church in those nations. Asian Outreach magazine carried a story in, its, uh, in one of its volumes of, uh, uh, they called it the old shoemaker. In, in this particular Chinese village, uh, an old man and his wife are under surveillance because of their suspected illegal Christian activities. The old man fell ill. One of the government officials who was keeping an eye on this particular house because of their activities one night said he saw two people dressed in white go into the old couple's home. They came out holding the old man between them and as he watched, he said, open-mouthed, they rose up into the sky and disappeared. He said his absolute stunned amazement was broken by the sound of loud sobbing. He ran down to the house to find the old woman cradling the old man's dead body. He explained what he'd seen. The woman shared the gospel with him. He ran home, got his whole family, came back, and they all became Christians. Those kinds of stories are standard fare for seasons of revival. Number six is his feet. The feet of God in Scripture speak of conquest or the exercise of dominion. Remember God saying to Joshua, wherever your foot goes down in the promised land, it's yours. It's it's under your dominion. So revival is a scene or a season when God's kingdom and his rule is extended in profound ways into areas that perhaps have previously been untouched or even resisted. Communities become impacted. In the Irish revival of the 1850s and the 1860s, it's recorded that the courts closed and the judges wore white gloves to signify that there were no trials coming before them. The community was profoundly impacted. Policemen formed singing quartets and went around the churches because there was nothing else to do. Wouldn't that be nice for New Zealand, (laughs) provided they can sing? In the Welsh revival, of course, and Chris will probably talk about that, uh, there's the story of the pit ponies that had to be retrained. The miners were getting saved in their droves and stopped swearing, and apparently the pit ponies couldn't understand the instructions they were now being given without um, without the cursing. Drinking establishments were closed, and even some sports events were canceled because all the players were at the revival meeting. Tremendous social change follows in the wake of these revivals, the abolition of slavery, prison reforms, care for orphans, the temperance movement. So many of these things 
were born in revival seasons. And then finally, his ways. And perhaps that's the, the goal. All of the others are preparations for this phrase, his ways. It's the end purpose of revival, that his people might know his ways. His ways aren't just, by the way, the end purpose of the revival. Perhaps also they are the greatest challenge of revival as well. Because it's possible in these seasons to become obsessed with, overcome by the acts of God, and yet at the end of the visitation, things return to the way they were before. A people who had seen God's acts but didn't get to know his ways. It says that in Psalm 103 verse 7. He made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The children of Israel saw phenomenal acts of God, but it never caused them to be shaped in a way that they were changed and to walk in his ways. After these acts and after these seasons of refreshing, often people just simply return to their idolatrous ways. You remember Jesus talking to the cities of his day in Matthew chapter 11. He said, Bethsaida, Chorazin, you have seen the mighty works of God, but because you weren't shaped by them, your judgment will be even greater. So there is a, there's a solemnity about revival and about praying for it. We've got to be changed by it. Not just enamored and obsessed with the acts, the supernatural acts of God, but changed by them. I, I want to read just this last prayer again, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. And then I'm going to invite um, Hannah and the team to come. In fact, you could come while I'm just reading this, Hannah. Uh, and this is going to be our prayer. Uh, we, we don't, the purpose of the series isn't just one of historical interest. The purpose actually is to stir us, to pray, to believe, to anticipate. There's probably not too many of us here who haven't been see, through seasons of decay and declension and, and you know, disappointment affects our heart and we, we just, the fire begins to dim. The purpose of this is to create something in us that will stir us to pray again that God would light the fire, that we won't neglect the gift that's in us, but that we'll stir it up. And here's Habakkuk's prayer. God... I've heard what our ancestors say about you, and I'm stopped in my tracks, down on my knees. Do among us what you did among them. Work among us as you worked among them. And as you bring judgment, as you surely must, remember mercy. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.